The Gospel of Matthew begins what is commonly referred to as the New Testament. Most of you in your Bibles have a blank page that separates what is called the Old Testament from the New Testament. There's this line of demarcation between Malachi chapter 4 and verse 6 and Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. And what I'd like to show you this morning at the beginning of this remarkable gospel, at the beginning of this amazing piece of uh, historical writing, at the start of this piece of divinely inspired literature is that it is part of the ongoing story of redemptive history and providence that began back in Genesis 1-1 with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It has been an ongoing story without any interruption all the way down through the fulfillment of all of his promises to his people. Most importantly, the promise that one day a Messiah would come, and he would come and he would be from the line of David, and that he would rule and reign and crush the head of the serpent who brought into God's world the sin that resulted in the death and hell that await all who continue in their rebellion. You see, Matthew is not starting something brand new. Matthew is continuing something that is quite old. And I know that because if you were somebody who was living in the first century, especially if you were of Jewish descent, you would be living with a great degree of anticipation at the time when Matthew is writing. You would be anticipating that hopefully in your generation, all of those promises that were made regarding the Messiah would be fulfilled. Because you remember how the old covenant ended when the prophets finished writing. You understand how it is that at the very end of the old covenant, the very end of that collection of books that make up what you call the Old Testament, God had already begun to fulfill his promise to his people. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but your Bible is not put together chronologically. It's put together in themes or in types of books, but it's not put together in order of events. If you were to order up your Bible by way of order of events, the last book wouldn't be Malachi. The last book would be Second Chronicles. And as you know, there wasn't an original First and Second Chronicles. It was just a very long scroll that got cut in two, and so you've got First and Second Chronicles. But First Chronicles begins with a rather lengthy genealogy. It was critically important for everybody to understand at that point in time where they came from. Because in the ancient world, it was far more important where you came from than what you did or what you had. In, in the time of Jesus, it was way more important who your father was than who, what your job was. It was way more important about your family line than anything your family had achieved. And so as the people of Israel are preparing to re-engage with their culture and their religion after being released from the Babylonian captivity that lasted 70 years... The writer of Chronicles is reminding them where they came from. And Chronicles ends in our second Chronicles with this amazing statement from the king, King Cyrus, who says that Yahweh himself, the covenant God of the Jewish people, has given him, this pagan king, all of the kingdoms into his hand, and as a result, he is going to, because of his great benevolence, allow the Jewish people to go back to Israel to begin rebuilding their city and eventually rebuilding their temple. 
And it was the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple that caused everybody to wonder if now would be the time when God would send the Messiah so that he could finally release them from the bonds that they were under with all of these foreign nations who had ruled them. You see, the children of Israel, when they were taken into captivity in 586 B.C., when the last two remaining tribes were taken into Babylon, their ability to govern themselves was extinguished forever. They were always and have always been under the rule of somebody else. And so here they were under the rule of the Persians. And they thought maybe we would be able to get out from under them. But it was the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans, all of whom ruled them and oppressed them. And so when you pick up in the story of Matthew, Matthew is beginning with a genealogy in order to remind all of the Jewish people that God had not forgotten his promises and that he was going to bring about that one who would come from the line of David that would rule and would reign. Now, with that as some background and some context, it might explain why it is that we're studying this book now. Because you'll remember that one of the most pivotal chapters in the books that we just finished looking at, 1 and 2 Samuel, was 2 Samuel 7, where God engages with David in the longest discussion between God and another person anywhere in the Old Testament except for when he was talking to Moses. And he gives this long speech to David promising him over and over again that it would be somebody from his line that would rule and reign forever. That that kingdom was never going to end. That it would be a forever kingdom. And for a long time it was. But what happened is because of the sin of those kings, God temporarily removed that line from the earth, that king from the throne. But God never forgets his promise. And his promise was going to be fulfilled. This morning, what I would like to show you very briefly from this text, this introduction to the Gospel of Matthew, from this genealogy, I would like to answer three questions regarding the Messiah that we celebrate on Christmas. I want to answer three questions. First of all, where did he come from? How is he qualified? And why does it matter? Where did he come from? How is he qualified? And why does it matter? Well, first of all, you can go back and look at that genealogy, and the question can be answered this way. Where did he come from? Well, obviously, he came from the line of David. But there's more to it than that, because to be perfectly fair and honest, he ultimately came from heaven. We know that because he was sent from heaven. He was not born. He did not come into existence. He was always. He is equal To the Father, equal to the Spirit. There is no level of authority or power. There is no dominance or submission within the Godhead. They are equal. They are one. The Son of God is not a son to a father as some inferior to a superior, but a son to a father as an equal in essence and substance and being. And so by being sent, he said that within the inter-Trinitarian covenant that was made to redeem some of lost humanity, it was his responsibility to go and be the agent of that redeeming covenant. And so that's why the second person of the Trinity came to earth. He came from heaven. 
But in order for him to redeem humanity, he also had to come from mankind. And what we see in this genealogy is he came from mankind. And specifically for this morning, just to highlight something for you, he came from, let's say, two men and and five women. Let's look at it from that perspective. Two men and five women. First of all, the two men, Abraham and David. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. That's why the author starts it this way. He wants you to know that Jesus Christ came from the line of Abraham and from the line of David. Why is that important? Because both Abraham and David received direct covenants from God. They were what we call a unilateral covenant. God did not say, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. You remember with Abraham, he made the covenant. He used the typical format, which is to cut animals in half and walk between them. And then in order that Abraham would not be so foolish as to even try to make a covenant with God that he could never keep, God put him to sleep and he went through and made the covenant on his own. The same with David. He shows up and he gives to David this kingdom that will never end, not because David had earned it, Not because David was doing something that was so wonderful that God saw fit to bless him. As a matter of fact, God took the kingdom from one man Saul and gave it to another man David because the prophet said that was God's choice. God chose him. God chose Abraham. God chose David. God entered into a unilateral, unrevocable, eternal covenant with both of them, and Jesus is the fulfillment But he also came from five women, five remarkable women, five women that either get way too much criticism or way too much praise, five women who were remarkable in almost every respect, and as a result are mentioned in the genealogy, which was very unusual in those days. The first one is Tamar. Now, you can read a little bit more about Tamar in Genesis 38, but She was a woman who had been promised the sons of a man named Judah, and Judah reneged on that cultural promise, and as a result, she was left without a husband and without children. And because she did not want her line to expire, uh, she dressed herself up as a temple prostitute. And because she knew the character of this man, Judah, uh, she was able to make herself available at the right time, and Judah uh, goes in and commits fornication with her, and as a result, she becomes pregnant. And when it is revealed that she is pregnant, this is his daughter-in-law, before he found out by whom and how, he says, well, then she ought to be burned. And then when the time comes to put her to death, she pulls out the things that were given to her by Judah as a promise that he would send payment for her services. And Judah says of this woman, Tamar, she is more righteous than me. When you think of Tamar, think she is more righteous than me. This is a woman who was creative. This is a woman who was bold. Uh, This is a woman who understood what needed to be done. And though she did it in a way that was not normal nor acceptable, but she had the courage to move forward to protect those who had come from her line. And Judah calls her righteous. There's another woman who also gets a bad reputation, and her name is Rahab, because almost everybody associates Rahab with being a harlot or a prostitute. In reality, it's more likely that Rahab was a temple prostitute. She was actually somebody in the culture that she was in considered to be very religious, 
And so when the spies were sent by Joshua to look at the land of Canaan, especially Jericho, they went in and they lodged with her. She wasn't running a brothel. She was running essentially what would be a church in our day. And so they would go, which was common in those days, to a place where they could find shelter. And they did that with her. And there's no indication they did anything immoral with her. There's no indication that they worshiped false gods through her. But she, out of boldness and courage, she turned from the gods of her fathers and from her own people, and she became a traitor to the people of Jericho. And she aligned herself with the people of Yahweh. And this bold, courageous woman hid the spies and as an act of war lied when the people came looking for them. She was another remarkable woman in Jesus' line. And then, not too far later, we get the woman Ruth. Ruth was from the land of Moab. She was in the line of David and in the line of Jesus because her father-in-law left the land that God had promised to them during a famine, and he went to a foreign land. And he tried to do better in the foreign land, but as a result, he died and his sons died. And his wife Naomi comes back, and you might know the story from the book of Ruth. And Naomi has these two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, And she turns around at the border and she says, girls, go back home. There's no point in you coming with me. You've got no future. Go back to your father's household, which is what you would have done back then, and maybe he'll find another husband for you. But if you come back with me, you're going into Israel. You are an outcast. You are a foreigner. You are a woman. You were previously married. You are thought to be barren. You are, it is hopeless for you. And Orpah says, you know what, Naomi, you're right. And Ruth says, you know what, Naomi, I don't care. I am going to go become one of your people. I am going to worship your God. And I am going to die where you die. And I'm going to be buried in your family cemetery because I am giving myself entirely to you. And God and his kind providence allowed for this bold, courageous woman to receive through Boaz a son who is in this line. So you have this remarkable woman, Tamar, A remarkable woman, Rahab. A remarkable woman, Ruth. Now, what about the next one? Bathsheba. Now, you don't know her as Bathsheba, but look down at your text. It says down here in verse 6 that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The author writes in to this text, into the eternal code of Scripture, the sin of David against Uriah, one of his mighty men, as we saw last week. And David saw Bathsheba going through a ceremonial ritual of washing herself, preparing so that she might be potentially eligible even for corporate worship. And David, in his wickedness and lust and sin, sends for her, kidnaps her, assaults her. And through that event is born a child that as a consequence is put to death as a judgment against David. But did you know that David and Bathsheba went on to have other children In fact, we know of at least four sons, and this is very important. It's going to become relevant in a few moments. At least four sons. One of them was Solomon. Another one was a man named Nathan. And from Solomon's line will come some kings, and from Nathan's line will come another. But this woman, Bathsheba, in the line of David, resulting in Christ. And then one more woman, and that's Mary. You've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Can you imagine what it would be like to be Mary? 
You know, Mary is venerated these days. There are certain false religions that say that Mary was sinless or that Mary was in perpetual virginity or, or that Mary was uh, brought up into heaven and didn't die because she was just as perfect as Jesus. There are some people who believe that Mary can forgive your sins or that Mary can be a mediator between you and God. None of that is true. Mary needed a Savior just like everybody else because she was a sinner. And Joseph went on to have children with Mary after Mary gave birth to Jesus. But for the rest of her life, she was viewed as a woman who had had this child out of wedlock. Not only a child out of wedlock, but a child out of wedlock who had a Messiah complex. She was relentlessly mocked and ridiculed and put down and insulted for the rest of her life because nobody ever believed her that she was actually pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Before we're too hard on those people, I don't think you and I would have believed her either. But from this remarkable group of people, you have this man, Jesus Christ. Now, it's very important to see that he came from Mary because it was through Mary that the actual bloodline would be established that gave him the privilege and the right to be king. And that's what brings up our second question. How is he qualified? Well, he's qualified in two ways. He's qualified in two ways. Number one, he is the Son of God. As we said earlier, by, by eternal decree, he is the Son of God. He is the King of heaven. He is the King of glory and grace. He is the King who created the world and everything in it and rules it and reigns it and holds it together because of his power. So he has every right by being the Son of God to be king. But God in his divine providence, ordained that he would also be not only truly God, but truly man for a very specific purpose that we'll see in a moment. But he is qualified now as the son of David. This is somewhat confusing and it's somewhat technical, so please bear with me for just a moment as I try to explain this. The people who read the Old Covenant would have understood very clearly that the line that I just read to you of that genealogy, listen carefully, would not have qualified and would have in fact disqualified Jesus from being king. The original reader would have read what I just read to you and concluded that Jesus Christ would not be eligible to be a king. The reason for that is because this line is traced from David, but through Solomon and ultimately down to a man named Jeconiah. And in Jeremiah 22, Jeconiah is cursed, and God says, may you never have a king on the throne from your family. What do you do now? You see, this is a cursed line. Well, the answer is that in Luke's genealogy, Luke traces Jesus through Mary. And Mary, her bloodline does not trace back through Solomon to David. But remember I said Bathsheba and David had other sons? Not through Solomon, but through a man named Nathan. So you have Solomon and Nathan. Both of them are sons of David. The original line was Solomon, but that was cursed. Nathan's line became the line that the king came from. Now what is this like? Well, it's kind of like today. In fact, if you look at the way that the monarchy is set up in England, you've got sons and if the king has more than one son, the line goes through one son and not the other. 
And if that one son dies, it doesn't transfer to the other son. It transfers to that son's children. That's all clear to us. We understand that. That's why today, if you're not the chosen son, even if you're a prince, there's really not much for you to do. If your brother was born first and and the line of the monarchy runs through him, there's nothing left for you to do. You might as well marry an actress, move to Santa Barbara, and write a book. Because there's nothing waiting for you at Buckingham Palace. Solomon was the one that it was to be passed through, but because of Jeconiah's sin, right before that Babylonian captivity, it would now be Nathan's line. And it was through Nathan that Mary came, and Mary gave birth to Jesus. And the reason our author here, Matthew, is so clear after saying, fathered, 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 husband of. Like, you're supposed to get it. You see, Joseph is not the father of Jesus. Joseph is the husband of Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. As miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. So, where did he come from? He came from Abraham and from David to prove he is the the covenantal recipient of their promises. He came from five women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary. Through Mary, the proper bloodline that made him eligible to be king. He also was qualified as the son of God and now as the son of David by blood and also by law, because Joseph adopted Jesus as his own and was understood to be his father. So he comes from the line of David on both sides of his parents. But let's ask the final question, why does it matter? I'm going to give you three answers. Number one, it answers questions. It answers questions. One of the things that the Gospels will do as we get through the book of Matthew over the next little while is that we're going to see that it raises and answers lots of questions. Scripture is not shy about interacting with those who have questions. Scripture doesn't take a posture that says, this is the truth, you just have to believe it. It takes a posture of saying, this is the truth, you have to believe it, and here is why. And it's great for even somebody who is skeptical of what the Scriptures have, because you can go back and see how historically it is accurate, how, how it defends itself even against the accusations that people would bring. In fact, Scripture is very secure in its presentation. It's not concerned about people questioning or doubting. If you're a skeptic, if you're somebody who is maybe just visiting because it's that time of year, uh, maybe you're somebody who's very intellectual and, and, and you're not going to take any of this stuff on faith, you really need to study it and get to know it, then you have chosen the right book to interact with. Because Scripture will take that person who's got questions and bring them through from start to finish until the end to try to reason with you and convince you and display to you why not only is Scripture and the Bible the only inspired, inerrant Word of God, but why Christianity is the only true way for you to be made right with God. But there's another reason, and that is to instruct believers. Why does all this matter? Because believers need instruction. One of the reasons why the Scriptures come to us is because we need to regularly and repeatedly be told the ways in which we can gratefully obey the good law of God. And one of the things that we're going to see in the book of Matthew are five sermons by Jesus. These are going to be the best sermons I have ever preached. 
because they're not my sermons. I'm telling you right now, I'm going to be guilty of plagiarism, wholesale plagiarism. I'm going to just steal them completely, and I'm going to say as little as I can because I don't want to mess them up. They're like having perfect ingredients, and you don't want to mess it up by doing anything to it. We're going to get to hear five sermons by Jesus, sermons about how to live in his kingdom, sermons about what it means to be the church, sermons about what he's going to do in the end times. It's going to be fascinating, and it's going to be instructive. And I hope that as we begin this tour through the book together, you're going to keep coming back because you're going to be so encouraged and so informed and so enlightened by these things that it's really going to change your life if you allow it. And I've got one more reason. Not only does it answer questions, not only does it instruct believers, but it brings hope to everyone. Matthew wasn't written just to Jews. Matthew wasn't written just to Gentiles. Matthew was written to anybody who can read so that they can hear this glorious good news of the gospel that is going to be on every page that we study. If you're not familiar with the gospel, let me give it to you in one quick sentence. The gospel is the good news that by faith alone, your sin and your hopeless condition before God is imputed to Christ. It means given to Him. And by grace alone, his righteousness, his act of obedience, his perfect life of obedience to the law of God is imputed to you so that when you stand before him one day, you are never going to have to worry about how well you did. You're not going to look inwardly. You're going to look to him and say, I am here because of what he did, not because of what I did. This is great hope. Had the opportunity to speak with a dear friend in another state last night who was very soon going to be with the Lord. And there is something really sweet about final conversations that you have with good friends when you're pretty certain you will never talk to them again in this life. And the one thing that we were able to share together that was so unifying and encouraging was that in a very short order, he's going to stand in the presence of the Lord, and his assurance is anchored not to what he's done, but to what Christ has done for him. Brothers and sisters, we're going to spend the next several months looking at what Christ has done for us. And Matthew, this former tax collector, this sellout, this person who everyone around him would have hated, is the person who is the most vivid example of what happens when God, by His sovereign grace, transforms you into a new creature. You are going to find this particular study, I think, incredibly helpful. Now, he is, as we've entitled this message, the King of glory and grace. He is the King of glory because He came from heaven, but He is the King of grace because He came for man. He is the King of glory because He comes from David, from that line of the Jews that was promised would always have somebody who rules on the throne forever. But He is also a God of grace because as you see, woven into that line are all kinds of Gentile sinners and outsiders just like you and me. So we're able to pick up this story, this gospel, and read it with the same joy as anybody else. And therefore, it is going to be a time together that you are never going to forget. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this awesome book and for just this genealogy that helps us to be introduced to this line from which Jesus came. Father, thank you for incorporating into it so many important reminders about how your providence unfolds. That even within families and households where one brother fails and may even cause the whole line to be cursed, there are other brothers 
Oh, Father, I thank You that we are able to listen to these words read and believe them with all of our hearts and our minds because they are true and accurate and that You have every intention of providing for even the skeptic the very evidence to bring them face to face with these glorious realities. I pray that You would use this book and this study and this series over the next several months to draw unto Yourself in saving faith those whom You've chosen before the foundation of the world. And may it be for their eternal good and for Your glory. And all God's people said,